0: Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Dedicated to the evolution of you, because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be. Helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. This is part two in the courage series from my course, Embodied Values and Virtues. Today we talk about the courage it takes to no longer need supervision. The expectation we have to be supervised comes from our school conditioning and unfortunately follows most people well into their adult lives. We also discuss the courage required to take responsibility for the people you draw to you and learn the lessons they are there to teach you rather than playing victim. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. As I mentioned, this series is from the course entitled Embodied Values and Virtues, which you can find at courses.clearandopen.com. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. And reading the assignment,
1: I didn't see an assignment within the assignment. So then I reread it. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm just supposed to look at the virtues and reread them and reread the code. And so, like, I reread it a bunch. But as I read it and I read it twice, I didn't see something and just in not about it. I'm like, oh, wow, there was an assignment. So then I just looked at it again. And it's so strange. Like, my... So, unconscious resistance like you phrased it i invite you to look at where you don't blah 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 where i was almost like expecting supervision like your assignment today is to a b c d and because it didn't tell me i was like well looks like there's no assignment i'm just gonna reread the code and i'm good (laughs) now i'm like it totally told it that exact like i'm smart enough to connect the dots there and I should have wanted to open that door. I mean, I don't want to shut it myself, but mm-hmm. I chose not to. And I'm like, wow, what? Why did mm-hmm. I do that? That is, I. Yeah,
0: that's a good thing uh, to be curious about.
1: Anyway, just wanted to bring mm-hmm. that,
0: so. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Ed. That actually came up. Um, Josh brought something like that uh, in the office hours. We were talking about the assignment. And I didn't really even, uh, honestly, I didn't realize that I would written it in a way that was, um, I'll admit, somewhat vague, uh, definitely not directive and definitely not supervisory. And what I was uh, telling, uh, saying to Josh in office hours was, uh, it's semi-unconscious for me, but sometimes I'll be very directive with assignments and that can yield certain Uh, sort of results and discoveries, like if it's very directive, and very clear what exactly there is to do, and you don't do it, you can learn something from that, what what was going on there. And then other times, like, you know, those assignments come out of me, just sometimes it just come out of me, it's just sort of like I channel it. And when we hang up, and I am inspired to write something, and I'm like, okay, okay, I guess this is it. And I remember thinking like, well, it's not so clear exactly what I want people to do. Um, but exactly what Ed is pointing to, what did you do with it? Did you go, oh boy, there's nothing exactly clear that I have to do here so I can get away with doing nothing? Or did you go, what exactly is being asked for here and, and, to, and look closer? Because a, a, a vague assignment uh, reveals different things than a very clear assignment, doesn't it? As Ed is, is pointing to. And it's the same in management, right? Like if you're a manager and you're constantly having to tell, having to tell people exactly what they need to do and how to do it, you, that is supervising by my definition, as Ed as pointed out. And supervision is okay if you're on the way to not doing it. Uh, but um, if you notice that you need supervision from other people in order to have something very clear to act on, Then I have some, uh, the good news is that there's a big growth opportunity for you. The bad news is that you have not yet earned not supervising other people. In other words, if you require supervision, then you will attract people who need supervision. And so in integrity, you don't get to complain. This is a virtue thing, this is honor. In integrity, you don't get to complain about anything in someone else that you can't do or have yourself. That's, to me, basic integrity. And this is particularly important in romantic relationships. So if you want to make a list of all the things you don't like in your partner, especially if you think they're like deal breakers or something, that's fine, make that list. Then ask yourself, what's your version of all those things you don't like? Because there's almost always, it might be a little smaller, it might be something you used to do, um, but you, you don't get to, in integrity, criticize what you don't have. And you don't get to crave, taking even further, you don't get to want your mate to have something that you don't have. That's not integrity either. Uh, I mean, you can do that, but uh, you will experience consequences of that because life doesn't support it. The, so you'll, go ahead.
1: I was, I was just going to say, the other thing that was fascinating in the moment is that I thought that I was actually trying. Like as I was reading it, I, in reading it twice, I gave my credit for like, well, I'm doing the thing. And I guess the thing is there's no thing. And that sat for like a couple of seconds. I'm like, cool. I guess I don't have work to do. I'm out, you know, and that's, that's freedom. It's a, it's a very teenagery feeling. Like it's very high school to like, get out of the assignment yeah. or get out of practice or what mm-hmm. have you. And yeah. it was interesting to see that in hindsight. I'm like, wow, that happened. That okay. Got it.
0: Yeah. And insert or rant here about our education system, which generally like somewhere around high school, I think by like sophomore year, there should be a very clear uh, transition from we're telling you exactly what to do and holding you accountable to uh, you got to do more of the work here. So like in in my experience, uh, like when I went to college, there were these things you could do called independent study. And it was very rare you could do that even before junior year was like the earliest you were allowed to do such things. And that would be where you'd go to a professor and say, Hey, I want to research this independently. You know, uh, let's, you sort of negotiate with them here. I want to make this sort of course for myself and get a credit for it, a full course credit for it. And here's the independent study. And they'd be like, okay, yes, I'll be your advisor in that. And, uh, I would want a, you know, 20 page paper, uh, that looks like this. And then, then, okay. And then you're on your own. And that was really cool. I, really, I did two or three of those my junior and senior year. But uh, that I think is not soon enough. I think that should be happening in your junior year of high school uh, where you have to show that you can own a project that is based on your interest and you're doing it for you. But the unfortunate effect of that not happening is um, that the supervisory nature of school carries into work. And then we have what I call the employee mentality, which is I'm here to work for you. You tell me what to do. And anything you don't tell me what to do, I'm not responsible for. And that's completely appropriate for teenagers. And it's a fine phase of development, but we get stuck there again because no one usually ever tells us. The, The place you have to learn that is typically in your 20s uh, in in work, where I always think of uh, that scene in uh, Office Space for Jennifer Aniston and the pieces of flair. If you haven't seen Office Space, that's a, a must see movie. Um, and the manager, says, you know, have these like buttons and crap. You're supposed to wear flair if you're the, an employee in this company. And and the manager is all awkward. He's like, "Yeah, I want to talk about you know the pieces of flair you have." And she's like, "Well, I've got you know because the minimum is seven or something," and she had seven, and. And she's like, well, I've got seven pieces of flair on. And he's like, yeah, well, that's like the minimum. And he's saying like, I want you to want to wear more flair. And she, he does not access her self-interest in wearing the flair at all. She's being supervised. She's not bought in. She clearly thinks the whole thing is stupid. And the manager is wondering why she's not wearing more flair because she doesn't want to. She thinks it's ridiculous. So the conversation that needs to happen is, so what do you think about this whole flare thing? Like, honestly, off the record, just tell me, you know, to actually get to that because there would be something there. She chose to have this job and now she's expressing victimhood by wearing the absolute minimum number of flair and having an, a visible attitude about it. If I were a manager, I would say, where else is that showing up in your life? And where do you think this is going to get you on your career path? And look, I know the flair is kind of silly, but hey, we both work in this restaurant chain and that's, those are the rules. So you tell me, does, is it actually serving you to do the minimum and be resentful of it? Like, what's that doing for you? That would be a real management conversation. But instead, there's just this awkward, I'm trying to get you to do this thing that I want you to do, but you clearly don't want to do it. And I'm just trying to get compliance. And oh, man. You don't want compliance in anyone. That's, that's a, then you get appeasement, and that's one of the four stress responses, fight or flight or freeze or appease. And appeasement is what happens when you don't actually access self-interest, and then you wonder why you don't have people's engagement. And this is a pandemic, to use our new term in the lexicon. I used to say epidemic, but now I know the difference. <laughs> So yeah, self-interest, and that's the clarify of aspirations thing. If the aspirations are clear, then you look at everything as, how is this my teacher? How can, What can I learn from this? Okay, there's nothing required to do here. Do I immediately go to, I'm free, I don't have to do anything. Well, what would a leader do? What's What's doing more than you have to? because that's what makes people want to follow you. And that's what, that's the path to greatness. You, you don't get really good at anything doing the minimum to get by. It's really kind of obvious. And all of you know this. All of you have experienced this in one way or the other. The question related to courage is, where are you? Here's, here's an assignment. You want a clear question to investigate. Where are you doing the minimum to get by? Now, you might have some good reasons for that. There are certainly places, you know, when I certain projects around the house where it's like, okay, uh, you know, I could be going around removing mold and polishing the rust off of everything. And that would be like a part-time job living in the rainforest a mile from the ocean like I do. Certain things I let go. And there's a reason for that. And it's not excellence. I'm not proud of it exactly, but it's just what makes sense. But if there's any domain where in your life where you're not getting what you want, yeah, your work, your personal relationships, whatever that is, ask yourself, um, where am I putting in a minimum? Where am I not courageously doing something difficult here? Because that's usually going to be the leverage point for having it be different. Anything else on
1: right action before, we, before I use that as a segue into courage?
0: Okay, then. And courage it is. So the, the Latin root of courage comes from uh, corare, curar, I believe, is the uh, term. And it's the same root as uh, in Spanish, corazon, which means heart. And I love etymology because it's, it's often so revealing to see what the true meaning of the word was. To me, the, the fact that the root of it is heart implies that you're feeling something. Uh, that's what the heart does. It feels stuff. And the interpretation of courage, if you ask a thousand people what it means, these days is largely um, synonymous with fearlessness. And this is an enormous error. Courage is not about not feeling fear. It's not fearlessness. Again, the root heart implies there's a feeling of something. Feeling of what? Well, sometimes it means feeling fear. So, you know, And it just takes a moment to think like, do you respect when someone does something that is noble? Okay. uh, Maybe excellent. Okay. But if they experience no fear, how worthy of respect is that? Like, how impressive is that to you versus the same noble, excellent thing where the person was feeling fear and they did it? instantly we go, oh, well, obviously the more noble act, the more courageous act is if the person is feeling fear and acts anyway. So the question to consider then is why is it that we uh, respect this notion of fearlessness so much? Why is it we define courage as being fearless? And why is it we crave the state of fearlessness that we think courage is? In other words, we want to be not afraid and do bold things in our life. Where on earth did we get that idea? If it's just after thinking about it for a minute, you can see it makes no sense. Anybody have an idea where we get that idea?
1: Our conditioning from childhood?
0: Say more. Can you get even more specific?
1: Um, well, I would say, I mean, certainly it comes from like our parental
0: relationships and you know uh, family environment we grew up in but i think it also comes from our like societal environments so of schooling teaching influence of peers mhm comes like through both types of environments yes you're definitely onto it so there's the conditioning of like how people actually talk about it. Like, do you at the ages of, uh, you know, between eight and 15, do you ever remember one of your parents saying they were afraid of something and they were going to do it anyway? Like, did you get any templating? Like, Oh, I have to have this meeting and I'm really afraid Did they ever share that or reveal that the answer for most people is no. So it's not templated for us. But no, I know. Goes... Go
1: Sorry, Joseph, I was going to say, um, uh for, for me and I think most men growing up can't speak for women, um, is along the lines of just buck up and get over it. There there was fear wasn't allowed. Um yeah. as a very young child, it's you just stop, you can do this and move on. So yeah, um there was an artificial sense of just do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And somewhere between the ages of ten and twelve, I, I can I definitely know for boys, because I was one of them, there's this sort of um implicit or explicit like okay it's time to stop crying now like you're no longer a kid like you're just saying you just got to buck up and like the the days of having strong feelings are over you're becoming a man now and somehow we get that idea and then wonder when we grow up why the women we're with are gonna complain that we're not feeling anything gee i wonder what if those two had anything to do with each other so even deeper than than all of that is um, something that uh, it happens on an unconscious level. And that is what's supposed to happen with us as children is when we feel fear, which is an, inevit- an inevitable human experience. When we feel fear, we're supposed to have parents who can feel that with us. Because children are not born with emotional digestive systems, the same way we're born with physical digestive systems. We develop an emotional digestive system in the heart fields of our parents. That's why when a baby is crying and is really upset, you pick it up. And then after some amount of time, usually it relaxes, it calms down. Well, what's going on there is the parent is literally helping the child to emotionally process what they're going through by feeling what they're feeling. And, uh, and that imparts to the child a kind of um it templates for the child and then imparts to it the growth of that emotional digestive system because you're with the child there's a kind of bond that happens emotionally and energetically where you're digesting the emotion for and with the child and then the idea is the older the child gets the less and less they need that sort of co-digestion it's like how birds you know, they eat the food and then regurgitate it into the baby bird. Eventually, the baby they're literally digesting the food for the, the young bird, and then eventually they don't need that anymore. So if you had perfect parents, which none of us had, I would offer, or I don't actually know, but I would, I would venture to guess. Since none of us had perfect parents, some amount of that digestive system is incomplete. And so we grow up. Knowing on some level that we are actually not capable of fully digesting all of our emotions, and then they have to get repressed and hidden and buried, and then it's off to the races. So um, chief among them is fear, because we are unable to digest a certain amount of fear, then we grow up and fig- and go, okay, well, I can only digest X amount of fear that means anytime it goes beyond this threshold, I can't handle that. I, I can't feel that fear. So then I'll avoid feeling fear. Therefore I won't do certain kinds of things that are scary because it causes me to feel more fear than I can handle. See how that works? And then as an adult, you get all the lessons from life, which is every time we avoid something out of fear tends not to go so well, right? When we do something motivated out of fear or we shrink back from something that we're afraid of, it doesn't work because the design of life, the intelligence of life, wants us to um, finish our childhood and deal with all the things that we're afraid of. That is exactly one of the ways in which we draw our worst nightmares. The thing you are most afraid of will happen to you. You draw it like a magnet. Because inside you, there's some part that says, I can't be, do, or have X because I'm afraid. And then life goes, oh, you poor thing. The only way you're going to outwork that is if you face it. And so you do. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to marry versions of our parents. We attract versions of our parents so that you can face your parent again and realize that it won't destroy you anymore. That's, you're facing a fear. And so uh, that's something you can do. Here's another clear to-do item for you if you want. I guess I'm doing the opposite today. Thank your partner for triggering your parent shit. Thank you so much, partner of mine, wife of mine, husband of mine, whatever, girlfriend of mine. Thank you so much for being a little bit like my mother or father. Because, oh, it makes me crazy, and without it, I don't know if I would ever be able to finish my childhood. Now, you have to say that without sarcasm, no. (laughs) How I just said it was like 15 or 20% sarcastic, because I don't know, I'm being funny. But say it vulnerably, like, man, I really don't know how I would work this out if I hadn't met you. And yeah, it makes me crazy, and I don't like it, but I can't complain about it, because this is a way I can learn that's how you stay on your side in a couple. And that's a courageous thing to say, because you might be thinking, well, if I thank them for it, then maybe they'll never stop. Yeah. How was railing against them working to get them to stop? How's that, was that work? How was coaching them? How was fighting it, telling them you won't stand for it? How's all that? No. I mean, you can do that also. You can set boundaries, but you also have to face, uh, how is it that I'm not a victim here? How did I draw this to myself? Whether that's a mate who's like your parents, a boss who's like your parents, uh, any authority figure for sure, and friends and family too. It's all for you, and that's the. Well, that's probably like you know one of the most difficult ways of applying courage is in uh, in relationships to see that, that um, the shadows in other people, even though you may see them clearly. They are they make you crazy for your own development. And that's not to say that their behavior or actions or whatever is okay. It just means that the only way to productively relate to it is to see it as a teacher. Not that person as a teacher, but that dynamic as a teacher. Because the only thing you can control, um, I don't really like to use the word control there, You know, it's said that the only thing you can control is your reaction to it, but it's not about controlling your reaction. It's about feeling your reaction all the way. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the Clear and Open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do.